Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on October the 4th, 2015. You all know that words are so important. You use them every day. Often you don't know what they actually mean if you were to look into the meanings of them because you're constantly getting new definitions of things. Very old art that is create new definitions which would obliterate uh, concepts, basically, uh, of, of the past, often concise concepts, too, by those who wanted to change everything. You find it in, in Orwell's terminology of 1984, and the linguistic minimalism, as dictionaries became thinner and thinner every year. And the idea was, if you could obliterate words and meanings and so on, you could stop all revolution and terrorism because they couldn't communicate ideas between each other and therefore uh, you, you couldn't teach them why to be upset about things to be even be terrorists, for instance. But Orwell didn't originate that idea because he watched the communist systems and he was involved in what was at that time the socialist system in, in Britain and he'd been well trained, in fact, in his university days, along with many others, to be an activist. And he fought in the Spanish Civil War, and he fought alongside, his group fought alongside the communist ones that were there, and he fell out with them when he realized that it was nothing to do with what he thought communism meant, because it had been preached in a kind of a friendly manner in Britain, you see. And he realized it was an utterly ruthless system. So he understood that those who were in different aspects of communism, the intelligentsia, you might say, were awfully important in changing the meanings of words. Because to have a revolution across the world, you had to first get the professors, the correct ones, into universities under different guises, and social policies sounded good, so they used that, and different social sciences, and who would complain about that? But in reality, it was to teach a generation, then a subsequent generation, right up to the present time, and a gradually incremental, increasing policy of, of how they should see the world, and how they would be activists by those way above them, and they never realized they were all being used. We're always being used. Always being used. If you look at politics itself, the meanings of that are obscure to most folk. If you ask folk for the definition of politics and, and uh, politic, you get umpteen different answers, you see, because they don't really know what it used to mean. But even in the old dictionaries, you'll find that to be a politic, you know, in a sense, was to be shrewd and cunning, you see, and, and expedient. So it was used by the state for its expediency to get something across, uh, whatever it happened to be. Any lie would do. We still get the same lies today. We're increasing taxes because things like that, you see, as long as they get across the noble lie idea. And to be shrewd, of course, means to be very careful in how you choose words and how you want the public to perceive things, or even in a conversation, how you want the person to perceive what you're trying to say, not 
what you really, really think about the topic because you can be more radical, you see, but how you want them to perceive it uh, as you test them out for a cause that you want to promote, things like that. But most folk never really stop and think about things too much. We run basically today, and we're trained to run on emotion by the same neuroscientists that, that also have different divisions in interdisciplinary sciences with behaviorists and so on and various uh, people who work on terminology at universities and government-funded labs and so on to basically find ways to indoctrinate us. It's awfully important to be indoctrinated today. You've got to have a cause in something, you see. Um, so they say, you see, you'd have a cause. You'd be pro this and, and against that, you see. You're politically correct, in other words. And if you run with emotion, you, you can never understand the, the basic facts. Because you have to look at facts and be uh, impassionate, basically. That's the only way you can have a clear head and a clear idea and help yourself to investigate further in all different directions. If you're already biased by emotion, that then you can't go into all the different facts and then you're used. Those who understand the mind, and your governments employ lots and lots of think tanks to do this, all governments do today, because they're all one really, they're all on board with the same agendas, and you'll find that they all make sure that you're given the correct terminology uh, and the correct, the, the new, the novel meaning of what this particular word means today, you see. Although, if you're into courts, the old language still stands because it can't be changed. Lawyers' jobs, really, are to try and get around the meanings of things, but not to change them on the books. I've mentioned many times about the, the movement that predated Bernays, basically, uh, of a particular type of science which at the time wasn't really regarded by most folk as a science, but it is a science. It's a a science of manipulation to make people do things they hadn't really thought of doing, you see. And Bernays, as you know, is wrongly, I think, wrongly called the father of uh, propaganda. He called it, he eventually changed it to to public relations. He He preferred propaganda himself. And his job was to convince the people to buy things they didn't want to buy. Hadn't thought about it. And to eventually get away from the idea of why you should buy this particular product and give you all the details as to why it's worth this and so on. And sell them the dream concept, the consumer society. Till now you're, you're buying plastic rubbish on everything and it doesn't last very long, but you sold the dream, or isn't this fantastic? It doesn't matter what it happens, a toothbrush to a vacuum to a vehicle, you see, and nothing's really meant to last. And, and of course, there's a whole, a whole science involved in marketing with pushing all of these ideas. Sell the dream. See, a dream remember, our dreams don't last long, you see. They don't last long. And it isn't until the end of the dream, when you try to recall it, it makes no sense to you. You know, the manifest content, latent content and all that. So it's the same with the old stuff you buy. You see it in a spur in the moment. Uh, this is going to make you feel happy and blah, blah. And you go and buy the thing. And then uh, as it heats up with the plastic and all that on it, it cracks and yada, yada, yada. Out it goes. But that's the way it goes, you see. Your soul dreams by those who want to get the cash off you. 
Bernays hated the, the masses of people because he knew it was just too easy to manipulate them by using these techniques, you see. And in public relations today, everything comes through public relations companies, from your police department to everything, a way of spinning something in a softer manner and occluding or omitting various words and other parts of the information to make sure you go away with a desired impression of the story that they want you to have. Everything's done that way today, across the board. Whenever you hear or read of an article where they, they said a spokesman said, this is a public relations officer, someone who's trained to spin, you see, and soften something to the public. Much of this technique was developed during the Cold War by those in the Soviet system, the intelligentsia that worked in all departments there, and their counterparts, and often they're more in common actually with those in the US, for instance, in universities, etc., of how to shape opinion and alter the culture. Yuri Bezmenov, the ex KGB guy, came who defected, has YouTube videos up there where he talks about how. In the 70s, when he came over, they were incredibly, they were blown away when they realized how effective their cultural change program had worked in the U.S. and the Western countries. you got to remember, too, that the Soviet doctrine, if you want to call it that, was basically to win and bring in a global system run by experts, the same as we're on, the same course we're on today, we're run by experts, to say, you know, who have lots of, lots of guesses, which they call theories, and as long as they all vote along the same theory, uh, that's the law, that's how it works. So, the Soviet system would promote all the aberrant things in the Western countries to make them utterly decadent, that was the term they used, and they would see the decadent West. But they made sure that all those things they were promoting didn't happen inside the Soviet Union because they knew it was a weaponized system of, of destroying the culture. And the same things are, uh, have been going on ever since the Soviet Union fell because you'll find most of it by that time was based in the West and not in, in the Soviet Union. Many of their top people had come out over years into the West to promote these agendas. Interesting, too, uh, that the concept of their flag, you know, the red flag, that the, the blood would flow during the active phase uh, where they had to, wasn't you can't reason with millions or billions of people. You got to slaughter all the top ones in every country. And that was the blood, the revolutionary phase. And we all know the red color and the star and all the rest of it and the hammer and sickle. But remember, too, that the, the, the phase when it was a universal culture, it was to turn to green. That was the ultimate perfected and, and dominant end product the commune was supposed to be. So they would, they would have a green flag eventually, you see. Interesting, too, that I've gone through the history of the Green Party that was meant to take over in this transition phase when they'd worked in the West enough that they could dismiss the old idea of communism 
and of the old Soviet-type communism had been work, and had worked into the West, and they wouldn't even know that they'd become communistic in their thinking through their indoctrination, through schooling, and everything else, you see. So they bring in the Green Party, and the Green Party was to take over and be this globalized party that would incorporate all the sustainability projects, all the greening of the planet, the carbon taxes, which we have to do. All these things uh, was to be part of it, you see, and originated in the Soviet Union, the idea. And um, I think it was Madeleine Albright, in fact, her, maybe her father or grandfather, Palestalans, had uh, come up with that plan to bring that into the West. Anyway... And the Green Party was to, to absorb uh, the right wing and the left wing, the liberal types, bring them all together into one party system. And things would be, a, uh, by that time that they brought it all in globally, this is what they hoped, then they would have everybody on board with it through massive indoctrination. There'd be no dissent or very little dissent at all. And they could shun all those who were dissenters to all their different policies, as we have happening today, in fact. Now, why am I prattling on about different topics all in one? You find they're all connected, you see. You'll find that Bernays, for instance, was employed by governments to change whole societies and whole cultures. You'll find that Bernays was also said to, to his trainees at that time, remember back in the early 1900s when he started, uh, in fact, a very young man when he was selected to go, he was 23 years old, with President Wilson to the League of Nations conference in, in Paris in 1919. And this shows you the pool. I mean, obviously this guy had been groomed from a very early age to, to fulfill this role. But Bernays would, would tell people, when, even advertisers and so on, or people selling products, don't, don't go door to door. He said, uh, go to the heads of organizations, civic heads and so on. Go to mayors, go to council heads, uh, town council heads and uh, politicians. Go to uh, religious organizations, go to their heads. If you get the top people on board or the top person, uh, then uh, they'll, they'll sway and bring all their flocks with them, you see. Millions of people, maybe even billions that today in today's terms. So it's quite easy to see that, that they planned to use um, the, uh, the religions to bring big agendas through. Same thing as Madame Levansky said, you know, that weirdo uh, from a long ago, when she said that eventually they would use the churches in the last phase. And she meant by that all faiths, basically. Now, Michael Gorbachev or Mikhail Gorbachev, as they like to pronounce it, was the president of the Soviet Union. Way back uh, in the day, before the Berlin Wall fell down and all that, and uh, I, I saw him groomed before all that happened with the articles in the paper where Margaret Thatcher brought him across to Britain, uh, this new this new super type, uh, almost a, a pop idol type, Swinging uh, superstar, you see, this president, when he, when he was president. And he, she took him by the arm uh, to meet all the top politicos in different countries to show him off. This new guy with his tailor made kind of lighter suit than the, the traditional dark ones that the Politburo wore. 
And remember, too, he was a president of the Soviet Union. He'd been indoctrinated from birth into the whole concept of the Soviet-type system. And uh, that's a lot of indoctrination, believe me, to get to that position that he was in at the time. And before the wall fell down, too, he had set up, by, with, the, with the help of the U.S. government, he had a, a set up in the Presidio in California, an ex-military base, for, to, to establish his new Green Cross Society, a massive network and NGO uh, to do with the environment and all the, all the stuff that you're hearing about today. And in all his books, he always says adamantly he is a socialist, he's still a socialist. And remember what they mean by socialism, folks, you know. It's full of political correctness to the maximum. You better agree with them, simple as that. And communism, as Stalin said too, really was just socialism in a hurry. So never take for granted that you think you understand, even if you've been through university, the concept of what they're talking about. Because to those in the higher echelons of, of these organizations, they have a different concept of what they're talking about than the one that they give for you to understand. And in some of their books, they admit that. Anyway, Michael, or Mikhail, wrote a book, you know, a whole ton of books actually, where he laid out the plans for the future. For, for this global society, you see. And one of the books is called um, The Search for a New Beginning, uh, also called Developing a New Civilization. Uh, so here, here you have someone who was in charge of this totalitarian system, steeped in the concepts of it, never renounced it, by the way. And um, it's, a, it's not a big book, and I think it was either published by the United Nations or one of its organizations. And it says, um, in one of the pages, I think it's 64, it says, at the same time we must begin to define certain moral maxims. There's no morality here. Or ethical commandments. See, this is religious terminology here. You know, The guy who swears is an atheist. And that constitute values common to all humankind. Now, who decides what these values will be? You see, well, the elite always do. It is my view that the individual's attitude towards nature must become one of the principal criteria for ensuring the maintenance of morality. Today, it's not enough to say thou shalt not kill, again, religious terminology, by an atheist. Ecological education implies, above all, respect and love for every living being. Well, no one would disagree with that to an extent, except for some big animals come to eat you. It is here that ecological culture interfaces with religion, you see. This is a guy who in another book said that he is an atheist. It's a question-answer book, supposedly someone from school children, things like that, where he says in the book he's an atheist. Uh, and yet later on he tells you that it must bring in a new system, which is a religion. It's just, it must be a form of earth worship. It's not the whole green project, you see, which will run every facet of your life, how you're going to live, everything else. So it's all tied together. You understand this? And this book here, this particular one, I'm reading, as uh, I say, uh, Gorbachev, The Search for a New Beginning, Developing a New Civilization came out in 1995. We had other ones before that, long before that. 
So that that's just a, a little bit out of one. And then when you go to another book that he put out, A Road to the Future, it's called. Complete text of December 7th, 1988 United Nations Address. So here's the head of the Soviet Union laying out the whole future for the planet uh, at the United Nations, which is all part of the whole system, you see, for the global society and all that agenda with its thousands and thousands of non-governmental organizations underneath it, all working towards it and all these activists. And remember, too, that the Soviet Union didn't allow unions inside it, like work unions. Instead, they gave you divisions, basically, of labor with their proper titles. And they also had non-governmental organization spokespeople who would supposedly speak on behalf of these organizations if they need what they needed for their work or, or all the rest or anything like that. And these were classes NGOs, you see. That was the, that's the meaning of a Soviet rule by councils. The only thing is, in the Soviet Union, the head of the NGO was appointed by the Politburo. That's a system we're not just coming into, but across the board, many of your local councils, you have these different eco-groups attached to them, and they sit in the boards, you don't elect them, and they decide what you can do and what you can't do in your own property. It's all here, really. Just want to push it to the final phase, and that's what we're living through right now. Now, in this address to the United Nations, in 1988, he said, the world economy is becoming a single organism. And no state, that's how they address them in the U.S., there's no countries, only states, you see, uh, whatever its social system or economic status can develop normally outside it. This calls for creating a fundamentally new machinery for the functioning of the world economy. A new structure of the international division of labor. World economic growth, however, is revealing the contradictions and limits inherent in traditional type industrialization. Its further extension and intensification are leading to an environmental catastrophe. But there are still many countries without sufficiently developed industries, and some have not yet moved beyond the pre-industrial stage. One of the major problems is whether their economic growth will follow the old technological patterns or will be able to join in the search for ecologically clean means of production. These are all the terms that you've been, you've been hearing for years and years now and, and speeding up and, and more incessantly to do with sustainable development goals. And I've just had the meeting, of course, at the United Nations again, the big one, and all your leaders were there signing away your rights and so on, and how much you're going to pay, carbon taxes, all that kind of stuff. This is to do with population control, everything, folks. Everything. To do with if you can breed or not to breed, that's all part of sustainable development. Remember, under this whole new system, Experts and scientists are supposed to rule our lives. And nothing in human nature can keep human nature from what they call science. 
all facts will be distorted for political agendas. They always are. On page 14 of this book, remember Tootsie's speech and complete text of the United Nations Address, 1988, he said, The greatest philosophers sought to grasp the laws of social development and find an answer to the main question. Now, this is ties in with neuroscience, behaviorism, and all the rest of the things that have been pushed and pushed and are helping to manipulate all our lives. This is how to make human life happy, right? So it's up to government to make us happy, is it? Generally, just make us sad. But anyway, it says um, how to make human life happy, fair, and safe. Well, to be safe, you see, the government must know everything you're doing all the time. Total information network and observation, etc., etc. And then they can intervene before you have a bad thought. Or if you have a bad thought and you've typed something you shouldn't have said or it's a a quip or whatever, they've got to tell you this is wrong and not nice and they've got to reprimand you or else. That that kind of stuff. You're finding it on the internet nowadays. And it says, uh, two great revolutions, the French Revolution of 1789, when they slaughtered all intelligentsia and all that, and same thing in the Soviet Union, right? And it says, and the Russian Revolution of 1917, that was a Bolshevik revolution, exerted a powerful impact on the very nature of history and radically changed the course of world developments. Both of these revolutions, each in its own way, gave a tremendous impetus to human progress. Again, they have their own definition of what they mean by progress. You better fact you find that out, folks. To a large extent, they shaped a way of thinking that is still prevalent in social consciousness. It's a most precious, and here's a term again, spiritual heritage. Again, from an atheist. And you'll find that the Sustainable Development Goals, and the different, even prayers at the United Nations for this stuff, to the great whatever, Gaia, you name it, they talk about shaping the spiritual future of the world. Interesting how they use that, you see. Now I only have about an hour to put a lot of stuff in, so I'm going to just go through some of this this stuff. You see, it ties in. It's a shame, really, because it's a whole bunch of lectures, I suppose. But, and mind you, too, this will be grabbed by some folk, and and they will never mention your name. That happens all the time. doesn't matter. Uh, Here's an article here. It's how they're using all religions, you see. And they've been doing it for a long time now. Well, I shall start with this one here, and it's... I've mentioned before, go to the cuttingthroughthematrix.com website, go into the archive section, and you'll find um, my talks on the World Council of Churches, and how once again a big foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, set it up with themselves at the head and so on, to bring the churches together, the different uh, denominations, all that kind of thing. And, they, and now, of course, they print a lot of their books for them, and, and their pastors and everybody else read the books, and they teach it to their flocks, and it gets them all. You must always standardize things, standardize all thoughts, but it must be your thoughts, you see, if you want to manipulate everyone. And it's done so cleverly with think tanks, the folk don't know. Anyway, the World Council of Churches, it says, um, is a worldwide inter-church organization founded in 1948. Its members today include the Anglican Communion, the Syrian Church of the East, and almost all the jurisdiction of the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Old Catholic Church, 
the old Catholic Church. The Oriental Orthodox Church's most mainline Protestant churches, such as the Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, uh, Moravian, and Reformed, and some Evangelical Protestant churches, such as the Baptist and Pentecostal. Notably, the Roman Catholic Church is not a member, although it sends accredited observers to meetings. The World Council of Churches arose out of the ecumenical movement and has its basis in the following statement. The World Council of Churches is a fellowship of churches which confess the Lord Jesus Christ as God and Savior according to the scriptures and therefore seek to fulfill together the common calling to the glory of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, it says here that it's based in, at the Ecumenical Center in Geneva, Switzerland. In that famous place the United Nations loves. The organization's members include uh, denominations which claim to collectively represent some 590 million people across the world in about 150 countries, including 520,000 local congregations served by 493,000 pastors and priests in addition to elders, teachers, members of the parish councils, and others. And it goes on about the history of it, etc. And all these topics, I put the links up tonight for those who want to follow it. And it goes through the history of it, uh, uh, saying that it met with initial success in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, including the Edinburgh Missionary Conference of 1910, uh, chaired by the future World Council of Churches Honorary President John R. Mott, and in 1920, the Ecumenical Patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Germanus V of Constantinople, etc., etc. But it goes on about the Rockefeller's involvement in it, and uh, I think Rockefeller was the first major head of the U.S. delegation. So anyway, I'll put that up to show you how it's used. Uh, you, if you remember a church today that's um, PC, political correct, you know, uh, then you, you'll be a member of it, whether you know it or not. And uh, your pastor will know, mind you, but, but you won't, perhaps. It's very similar to when George Bush Jr. Uh, sent for all the top pastors that could influence people in the U.S. And they even offered them money, etc. Because all these churches are always looking for money for bigger churches and all that. And bigger mortgages and yada, yada, yada. And if, if they bring their, their flock on board with the war agenda in the Middle East. Anyway, same thing with this too, you see. Again, Bernays, why... Why have to go door to door to create something when it's already done for you? Just go for the top guys, get them on board with you, and the, the flocks follow. Here's an article here. Because we've heard all the Catholic bashing, you see. But they're, they're, they aren't the only ones that were taken over, you see. And uh, it says here, this is to do with um, Yale Climate Connections, is called. And it says... Uh, Baptists and climate change seize on climate and major religions. And this was put out in 2012. There's much earlier ones too you can find. And it says America's roughly 52 million Baptists hold a wide range of views on environment, and for many of them, scripture is the key to their attitudes towards climate change. Remember uh, the old Soviet system too to change the West. Because nothing is thrown out when you think, oh, the walls came down. I've got to throw. Not all that science, knowledge, uh, and behaviorism techniques and so on are, are, are used, believe you me. And it says here, uh, as, a, as the key to their attitudes towards climate change, you see. So they, they use the scripture. 
And remember, the scripture's full of contradictions. Depends what translation you're reading, uh, and you'll find what country of origin and so on uh, that they come from. But it says when God created the first man and woman, blessed them, and so on, Genesis teaches delivered instructions that would resonate for millennia, fill the earth and subdue, he says. And subdue the birds in the sky and every other living creature that moves in the ground. In 2007, the Southern Baptist Convention drew on this passage in a resolution of global warming, declaring that Christians should exercise dominion over the earth and the U.S. government should reject mandatory cuts in greenhouse gas emissions. You know, that, that trace gases that they're always harping on about. But some have found inspiration other in another verse. So you always find, you see, you can always go and find something contradicted. Genesis 2.15, which says that Adam's purpose in the Garden of Eden was to work it and take care of it. To many Baptists, it suggests that people should develop a benevolent relationship with nature. You see. And it goes on and on and on. And contradictions in dominance and stewardship. And they go into the different diverse Baptist views and all that. But they've, they've got them on board, basically. And it says, in a recent Sunday morning at Binkley Baptist Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the choir opened worship with a rendition of Morning Has Broken, a hymn set a Gaelic melody that exalts in the dawning of a new day. It says, um, Binkley and an American Baptist church participated in March 4th in the, the preach in, the preach in, they call it, like 11, a preach in on global warming. I've got, I'll put these links up too. It's on the article I'll put up. All the links are there on this particular one. Then it goes on to this one. A Southern Baptist declaration on environment and climate change. And I'll tell you, if you have a different opinion on anything, you're going to have it changed for you because you're targeted, and they'll change it. You know. It's just too easy to change people's minds on things now by repetition, remember, basic repetition. A Southern Baptist Declaration on the Environment and Climate Change. Southern Baptists have always been a confessional people giving testimony to our beliefs, which are based on the doctrines found in God's inerrant word. Uh, the Holy Bible, as the dawning of new ages has produced substantial challenges requiring a special word, Southern Baptist churches associated in, with and general bodies have often found it necessary to make declarations in order to define, express, and defend beliefs. And it goes on to say, the preamble to the Baptist faith and message, uh, 2000, declares, each generation of Christians bears responsibility of guarding the treasury of truth that has been entrusted to us, and facing a new century, Southern Baptists must meet the demands and duties of the present hour. New challenges to faith appear in every age. We recognize that God's great blessing and our domination bestow upon us a great responsibility to offer a biblically-based moral witness that can help shape individual behavior, private sector behavior, and public policy. Conversations like this one demand our voice in order to fulfill our calling to engage the culture as a relevant of body of believers, and goes on and on and on. And it says, proud of their deep and lasting commitment to moral issues like the sanctity of human life and biblical definitions of marriage, will never compromise our convictions nor attenuate our advocacy on these matters. And it says, we've recently engaged in study, reflection, and prayer related to the challenges presented by environmental and climate change issues. These things have not always been treated with pressing concern as major issues. Indeed, some of us have required considerable convincing before becoming persuaded that these are real problems that deserve our attention. But now we've seen and heard enough 
so they've, they've had lots of indoctrination lectures and so on, to be persuaded that these issues are amongst the current year's challenges that require a unified moral voice. We believe our current denominational engagement with these issues have often been too timid, failing to produce a unified moral voice. Our cautious response to the, these issues in the face of mounting evidence may be seen by the world as uncaring, reckless, and ill-informed. Now, if you're just following Christianity, why do you care what the world would say? But as Mars says, we can do better to abandon these issues to the secular world as it sh- uh, shrink from our or shirk from our possibility, our responsibility to be salt and light. And then they offer up their statements. Humans must care for creation and take responsibility for our contribution to environmental degradation. And then you go through the wildlife, water, land, air, damage by man, activity, and all that kind of stuff. And um, then going through different God's commandments and all the rest of it too. And it's a statement too, it is prudent to address global climate change. We recognize that we do not have any special revelation to guide us about whether global warming is occurring, and if it's occurring, what people are causing it. We are looking at the same evidence unfolding over time that other people are seeing. Now, if other people are seeing it, it's because the, the, the massive campaign to make sure it's a unified thing, this is, this is the version you're going to see. Is, is going to be that that's it. In other words, don't think, just take the experts' point of view. The ones that are all paid uh, and get massive grants to push this stuff. Anyway, this is recognized that we do not have special training as scientists to allow us to assess the validity of climate science. We understand that all human enterprises are fraught with pride, bias, ignorance, and uncertainty. I'd also put fraud, you know, and corruption. It says, we recognize that if consensus means uh, unanimity, there is not a consensus regarding the anthropogenic nature of climate change or severity of the problem. There is general agreement among those engaged with this issue in the scientific community. So if science says it, then blah, blah, it's okay. A minor- minority of sincere and respected scientists offer alternate causes. That's not true. There's way more than half of <laughs> scientists are not in on this thing because they're not allowed in because of contrary points of view. And a lot of them have got better credentials than the ones who are in the IPCC. And it says here, um, they mentioned for, uh, burning of fossil fuels, all the terminology and so on. And, and so they're pushing that they're all on board for it, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And this next article, too, is to show you the religious nature. Remember, going back to Gorbachev, he talked again about... Uh, the form of system they're bringing in to do with environment and so on must be based on a form of earth worship. Think about that, you see. This article here is um, is quite interesting. Uh, it's, um, it's mainly a, a far-left organization with all the UN agendas in it, in fact. And it says, Africa, Canada, relations from charity and aid to solidarity. Where have you heard that term from? Where did that come from? Eh? And transformation, again, century of change. Everything's to be transformed in the century. This was from uh, February 2nd, 2009. From Molly Kane, it says. Uh, organization that she belongs to is Inter Paris, former executive director. I've got to just preface this by saying, for those who don't understand it too, many of the, the, the Catholic uh, convents were taken over since the 60s by a particular type of promotion. And I'll, I'll mention it uh, further on, actually, if I get time. 
But it says the following is adapted from a keynote address by the inter pares, I mean, amongst equals, Executive Director Molly Kane to a gathering of the Canadian Association of African Studies under the original title, Canada and Africa Prospects for Internationalism and Common Cause. We heard that before, Common Cause. And so the whole speech there linked to it anyway. And they go through basically creating different things to do with religion and all right, so to bring everybody in. Uh, diversity, all these different things must come in, all the women's rights, all the usual things you've been hearing in the West and so on, all the buzz terms and words, the slogans that Lenin talked about. He says we shall win by slogans. They create them and we'll part them eventually. <laughs> says, As a visitor to African civil society for over the years, I have heard many stories and many points of view. Young people challenge the older generations to make way for new kinds of leadership and political action. Women assert their determination not to be marginalized within movements. Farmers criticize the non-governmental organizations and academics for appropriating their struggles and their voices. People discuss human rights, the World Trade Organization, debt cancellation, women's rights, peace building and democratization. But rarely do I hear anyone say that Africa needs more aid. Neither does anyone say that Africa does not require aid. The subject uh, just doesn't come up when Africa's strategic development interests are being discussed. And it goes on and on about it, and so on. But this, this uh, it's interesting to see all the different organizations that are involved in it. Just, and it's all from basically UN ones, the, the proper UN ones, you might say. And again, uh, inter Perez. It says, um, our mission, we're dedicated to empowering people in Canada around the world to be at the centre of their own development and to assert their own agency by supporting the work of our counterparts, and, and it's a list of them there too, a, a link of them, to them. We help communities f- confront injustice, implement locally adapted solutions. Remember, think, you know, act local, uh, think global and all that kind of stuff. Um Spark innovative initiatives and occupy the political space that belongs to them. We're also committed to engaging Canadians in the struggle for justice and equality that people face around the world and to offer ways to take action. And this is we put equality into practice as the key component for creating a better world. We work in solidarity as citizens from around the world connect for a common cause. Support women's leadership because women occupy a central and crucial role in societies, though they're often marginalized. We foster participation since people and communities need to actively participate in creating solutions to the poverty and injustice that affects them. We promote sustainability, there you go again, to help communities become self-sufficient and environmentally and financially sound. That involves uh, the World Bank, uh, the central banks, and uh, Bank for International Settlements, all this stuff for, for money. And again, uh, they also they have this um, environmental soundness and all the rest of it too. So, so sustainable development is which what they're actually saying here. Good site though. And um, here's an article here, which is quite interesting too. It says uh, CRC's JPIC <laughs> Atlantic Network Fall Gathering, the Canadian Religious Conference, it says here. This is at the October 29th, 30th fall gathering of the CRC's GPIC, Justice, Peace and Integrity of Creation Atlantic Network. Roma de Robertus, SCIC, left, and it shows you who they are and so on, offered the presentation at the NDSC Mother House. As soon as you hear this terminology, you know you're into the far, far left United Nations non-government organizations, you know. 
It says it was held in Moncton, New Brunswick, and highlighting the, the 65th annual DPI NGO conference. They should give out whole dictionaries to do with these things, shouldn't they? Right? Shouldn't they? Displayed in the conference bag, the theme was 2015 and beyond our action agenda. Now it's a religious conference, right? Canadian Religious Conference, CRC. And it says, for all those who, you don't hear this in the regular news, do you? you know? So it says, here's your action, action agenda for 2050, referring to global action on climate change and sustainable development goals. As the NGO liaison for their, for their congregations, Irene and Roma participated in the conference with the Sisters of Charity Federation. I can remember too. There's there's convicts and nuns involved in all of this too. That since the sixties, since we're all indoctrinated in a new way of looking at things, and I'll go through that maybe if I've got time later. Now, just to rush up a little bit here, I'll also put up uh, the interfaith climate statement. It's called it's called Climate, Faith and Hope, Faith Traditions Together for a Common Future. I'll put that up tonight. And you can go through that to see how they've all been taken over and used for quite a long time, actually, for this, this particular purpose. And take part in a, a climate pilgrimage is another one, too. You can go on pilgrimages now for the climate, for Gaia, you know. Only you're Christian or you think you are, whatever. I don't know how you really think these days. And fasting uh, is fasting for the climate as well. It's another big one uh, put out by the World Council of Churches. So you can fast for the, for the climate. Maybe, maybe the climate will hear you and say, God, they're suffering, poor souls, they really love me. And climate, being our God, will bless you or something. And here's an article here. It's awfully important to understand uh, to do with how they were taken over a long time ago. It says, Carl Rogers and the IHM nuns, sensitivity training, psychological warfare, and the Catholic problem. It's by a professor, by E. Michael Jones. He's, he's ridiculed by some organizations because he's, he's, he comes out with a lot of stuff that's not politically correct these days. But being a professor, you're supposed to be able to say things that most folk can't say. Uh, and things like that, because, because all concepts must be discussed openly. It doesn't matter how crazy or, or real or whatever they are, they must be discussed in, in a real free society. But anyway, universities were taken over a long time ago as well. It said, during the summer of 1966, at the end of the Second Vatican Council, that's when the Catholic Church gave up its authority as, a, as, as a system had always been. And the beginning of the sexual revolution, the world seemed alive to a new sexual possibility, especially for Catholic nuns and priests, many of whom confidently expected that Catholic Church uh, discipline on celibacy was about to be lifted. Joining them in a chorus of mute anticipation were the Catholic laity, who were just as confident in their expectation that the ban on artificial birth control would be lifted soon as well. Pope Paul VI had appointed a layman-staffed advisory board, and it was, it was assumed correctly that it turns out that they would vote to overturn the Church's long-standing ban on contraception, a ban which had been reaffirmed as recently as 30 years before Pius, I think it's 11th years ago, it's funny uh, coding into this, the way it's reading on my computer here, 
encyclical. It says, uh, Casti Cornuba on Christian marriage, it says. Because of Pope John uh, XXIII, President John F. Kennedy, and the Vatican Councils, Catholics had become the focus of so much media attention they failed to see distortions in the mirror, which the media dominated by, uh, by alumni of the OSS. And it's true enough, it's been articles out that the, the old members of the, the precursors of the CIA were heavily involved across the media at that time in the U.S. Uh, in the US and, um, and then eventually transformed into the CIA and kept their members in major magazines and so on. So another psychological warfare operations. So your media is really psychological warfare anyway. Held up uh, the collective face and says they failed to understand how seriously mal- uh, malformed their opinions were becoming at the hands of people like Xavier Rennie and Michael Novak and other media enthusiasts who felt to a man that the long reign of anti-Catholic bigotry in the U.S. had come to an end and that all the church needed to do to create its own happy ending was to join hands with the liberal zeitgeist as reported in places like Time and The New Yorker, drop a few medieval sexual prohibitions and walk off into the sunset. And that was modernized by the sexual revolution and all the other revolution, so they're all part of this total transformation, you see. That was the idea of the revolution, which was planned. And all the people who were out to enjoy it all had no idea they were all getting used to destroy themselves. In keeping with the spirit of the age, at some time during the summer of 1966, the Immaculate Heart nuns of Los Angeles, California, and here's the kicker, invited a New York psychiatrist to the retreat house in uh, Montecito, I guess it is, to conduct what had come to be called an encounter workshop. The encounter thing, they're still using that through education today in different workforces, encounter groups to call it. A session of truth-telling and ice-breaking group exercises that broke down social inhibition, fostered an illusory sense of intimacy, and opened the way for engineering of consent. I've been talked, I've talked about that many times. By the name of Carl Rogers and his associates began something they called the Education Innovation Project, it says. I was a psychologist, Carl Rogers. And they would use uh, peer pressure to enforce this in the group, you see. Rogers had become famous in 1961 with the publication of his book on, called On Becoming a Person. This is when the reason all the Freudian attacks to change the American, especially American society. He, along with Abraham Maslow, whose book Towards a Psychology of Being came out one year later in 1962, had become the two leading proponents of what came to be known as humanistic or third-forced psychology, meant to transform society. That's where all these different groups suddenly came out, the wolfing and rolfing and yadi yan and so on, and all these massive encounter groups, etc. Now, the term they also gave to these encounter groups was, was basically the third force psychology, and it meant a, a therapy that was based on both Freud and, and the behaviorist, Watson, uh, but was more uh, client-centered. This is in 1965, this other member, Rogerian therapy. Carl Rogers began circulating a paper entitled The Process of the Basic Encounter Group to Some Religious Orders in the Los Angeles Area. One group which found his ideas intriguing was the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. This should not be surprising because the California-based IHM nuns had already established the reputation of being innovative. This is in the early uh, 60s, Sister Alois, the, the, it says, uh, 
the superior, had brought in the Dutch psychologist priest Adrian van Kam for retreat exercises, during which all community rules were suspended. This is the result of this sort of innovation were predictable. After allowing the psychologists in, the nuns became aware of how dictatorial superiors were and in turn found how dependent, submissive and helpless nuns were when it came to working with the outside world. By the spring of 1965, James Francis Cardinal McIntyre, Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, had become upset at the large number of Immaculate Heart nuns who'd asked to be dispensed from their vows. Large, as his time would show, was a relative term in this respect. Soon the number of nuns asking to be laicized would turn into a flood. And the sensitivity training which Carl Rogers unleashed in the order under the auspices of the Education Innovation Project, that's what they call it, eh? would play a major, they're always using doublespeak and, and Orwellian terminology to hide something, uh, would play a major role in their leaving. By the time the experiment was over, the order would cease to exist, leaving subsequent generations to puzzle over an incident which had become a classic instance of renewal gone wrong in the aftermath of Vatican II. Because they're all becoming oh, new and scientific and trendy and get in touch with your feelings and all that stuff, you see. Uh, and I mentioned, again, into the, my archive section of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, I give a talk on another group of nuns that they brought in the Esalen Institute, another group who were doing the same kind of therapy. And within a few hours, they had the, the, the nun, nuns stripping off and having a lesbian relationship with each other. And then they all left too. Uh, so anyway, you, you can't believe, if you allow your, your brain to be taken over by professionals who know how to manipulate their, their thoughts and to, again, weaponize psychology, they can really screw you up, folks, believe you me. It's, it's not some mild thing that it's, that's often taught about. This is, this is a, a massively uh, well-understood technique. Anyway, it says... In mixed intensive workshops, positive and warm, loving feelings frequently develop between members of the encounter group. And naturally enough, these feelings sometimes occur between men and women. Inevitably, some of these feelings have a sexual component, and this can be a matter of great concern to the participants and a profound threat to their spouses. It goes through, it's a great history, actually, it gives you on this. It says, right around the time that Rogers was circulating involvement, they basically encountered a draft of a paper published two years earlier as a called The Process of the Basic Encounter Group. Among the Immaculate Heart nuns in 1965, the Vatican Council came to a close. A close reading of the pertinent documents would show the reaffirmed Catholic tradition, but at that time, uh, close readings had been issued in favor of readings in keeping with the, the spirit of Vatican II, which seemed eager to second whatever the secular zeitgeist was proposed at the time. Now, here's where it gets interesting, too, if it's not interesting already. On September the 2nd, 1966, Pope Paul VI implemented the earlier council decree on religious life called Perfecti Caritatis by issuing a motto proprio in which the, he urged all religious, or uh, those who were all religious and so on, to Catholics, to examine and renew their way of life and toward that end to engage in wide-ranging experimentation. You think it's just recently the, the Vatican's been taken over. The Pope added the following caveat, provided that the purpose, nature, and character of the Institute are safeguarded in keeping with the spirit of the times. The caveat was all but universally ignored. In fact, those most eager to experiment were those also most likely to ignore it. 
The IHM's sisters were among the first to respond, and within six weeks, the Pontus letter had been circulated amongst the 560 members of the community. A number of the commissions uh, were appointed to study carefully all aspects of the religious commitment. Religious orders like the Immaculate Heart nuns, already bigger than they had ever been in their history uh, of their existence, now seemed on the verge of even greater accomplishments as they renewed themselves by getting rid of outmoded forms of dress and behavior. Now the same baby boom which their schools had educated was providing vocations to staff the order. A generation of demographic increase was beginning to pay off. One member of the generation who had decided to become an Immaculate Heart nun was Gian Cordova. Cordova graduated from high school in the spring of 1966, and on a sunny December of 1966, she and four of her nine brothers and sisters drove up to the novitiate in Santa Barbara, where she was to begin her life as a nun. She was through the whole process of what happened. Uh, she was then relocated to downtown Los Angeles, near Skid Row, and then encountering groups and all the rest of it. And I think she really you know, changed her... Uh, uh, she had a propensity for a particular type of sex or whatever, eventually, things like that, you know. Uh, but uh, this is an awfully good article. It's pretty lengthy, and you should read it uh, and how the sensitive training literally demolished what was often Catholicism, and then use the same members uh, throughout their lives to be again activists for this whole whole massive transformation agenda across the world, basically. You see, see, you understand, people who are dedicated to something and who are more active, they dedicated are great members if you can convert them because they'll put the same dedication into the new cause. They're looking for a cause. It's well understood at the top as well by those who, who know how to manipulate uh, us, basically. It's, it's child's play. If you give your head away to someone else, he's going to tamper with it. He or she will tamper with it. You've got to keep your own mind. That's the world we live in, folks. It's, Pretty dangerous, isn't it? I said years ago, be, the hardest thing ever would be hold on to your sanity is with this big transformation. This is a century of change which is all going to be accomplished. And you could be on board with it and give you permission, you see. And most, most of you will, actually, if you've not already done it. You probably have in, in many ways, too, without even knowing it. Remember, folks, too, if you, to buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughmedias.com or you can donate to me. And how we do it is all there. Helps me maybe take along. Because whatever I put out here is copied by lots and lots of people who never mentioned me. <laughs> but that's the way it is, isn't it? So from Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, where the winter's already here. It's going down to about freezing every night almost. It's good night to me, your God, your gods go with you. Mm-hmm.